Hello, friends. It's Todd, and I am currently out of the country on vacation. I'll be back Thursday, February 29th. So instead of a regular newscast-type show, please enjoy this deep dive interview. Well, in the e-commerce space, there's no end to the number of plugins, platforms, and pop-ups you can install on your store's web front to try to juice sales. One of the biggest focuses of this category is around increasing the conversion rate between the moment someone adds a product to a cart and that person actually pays for it. In fact, I'd venture to say an entire industry now exists in the very specific but very important space known as cart abandonment. Some studies show that 80% of online shopping carts are abandoned. In this space, we see everything from urgently worded text messages to time-limited discount offers by email. Sometimes these tools encourage people to come back to the site to read the product reviews or browse more product pages. But a new paper published last month in the Journal of the Academy of Marketing Science says tactics like that might actually be causing people to abandon their carts. Angelin Scheinbaum is an associate professor of marketing at the Wilbur O. and Ann Powers College of Business at Clemson University in South Carolina. Dr. Scheinbaum, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. Can we start with the basics? What are the major reasons why people abandon a cart? First of all, if we can talk about the concept of shopping part, cart abandonment in general and, and why I think it's so interesting, um, is first of all, this is a digital behavior that's just so different than the real world. If you think about last time you went grocery shopping or um, even retail shopping, it's very unusual to take something and to put it in your cart or your basket or your hands even uh, and get all the way up to the counter and then not go through with that transaction. So that led us to study this online. If it's particularly rare in the real world uh, or the non-digital setting, why is it that, as you said in your intro correctly, that 70 to 80 percent of all carts are um, subsequently abandoned or not converted to the sale? Uh, so to answer your original question, you know, why? Why is this? Well, on a broader theory, we look at this really from a psychological lens as well as a social lens. So psychologically, a lot of it is, um, first of all, you just don't have that purchase motivation. You're more curious rather than uh, really in the goal-oriented mindset of wanting to complete that uh, the second is really economic control. It's to get more information. It's to um, maybe get a better deal. It's to see your total price of after taxes and tip and shipping and all of these kind of bizarre fees that a lot of companies now are adding on to transactions. Sometimes it's just quite simply an organizational motivation, right? That people are getting a wish list in order or uh, getting some ideas put together and putting things in their basket that particularly, uh, again, they might want to look at as an organizational state. Uh, and then I think the last two reasons that we found would be, um, you know, the research and information motivation as well as a convenience motivation that for some people it's uh, just simply something really convenient to do, especially on a cell phone. Uh, to go through with putting something in a cart, but maybe really never buying it. You found that when people start a session with an existing cart, they'll use the cart more, but they're more likely to abandon it in the end, specifically when, when they're starting a session where they've got an existing cart. Why do you think that happens? Well, you know, we pondered with this as well, because it could be that that existing motivation to actually purchase was never really there all along. So 
Again, we're only speculating because this is clickstream data. Now, the beauty of clickstream data is we're measuring actual behaviors, right? We know where people's uh, eyeballs were. We know where people were clicking throughout the purchase funnel. What we don't know, though, is that why. So again, please note that whatever findings we have, when I go to explain why they held or why they didn't, I'm merely speculating because I don't have that ability to ask a customer. Our theory or one of our hunches could be in that case, there must have been a reason why somebody didn't complete that transaction in the first place. Uh, so maybe the second time, uh, it could be the same reason, right? Maybe nothing else had actually changed from shopping session one to shopping session two. I see. Okay, that makes sense. I also thought it was kind of interesting. You found that when people um, uh, they they start a session again with an existing cart and then they go poke around other product pages, they're actually doing that more for entertainment value than as like an indicator of product interest. So, should we? encourage that behavior because you know entertainment and fun is a positive brand association or should we discourage it because it leads to actual less cart usage i think that's a good question and it probably depends on the type of product that we're selling uh, and although i don't have data to mix this up between hedonic or um you know fun purchases or utilitarian or kind of more uh, i guess boring purchases right um I would love to get data on that to split that up to see, because I really do think that your question, I think it matters what type of product. And I wish I had data um, to dig down to see what that is. But I do think the theoretical or the managerial implication there um, is just to, like, to be careful. Like, don't add extra pages for customers to look at, because that's only going to potentially give them somewhere else to go to click on to not complete a purchase. And I'll give you an example of work that's not my own with our team, but one of the papers that inspired us was interestingly on those uh, coupon codes, right, or discount codes. And the work was quite counterintuitive in that you would think that if a customer has a code, right, or if a code exists, it would help somebody complete a business transaction. But what amazed me, those researchers found, was that it actually increases cart abandonment, right? Because it's just one extra step for a customer to do something. Or you think, oh, man, I don't have that code. Or even worse, like, what? There's a code and I don't have it? Well, I'm not going to complete that transaction now. So mm. the big picture in this, right, uh, again, with a caveat, it depends on what you're selling, uh, I do think that we need to think long and hard as marketers um, of providing extra things, extra pages, because that only gives one more chance for somebody to click here, click here, click here, click here. And then you become so far removed from that potential sale that you had kind of um, right there. So um, it's so tempting to do, too, isn't it? Exactly. So the data set you mentioned earlier, uh, the, the data that you collected, the data set you used for this research came from a large European retailer that sells sportswear and clothing and home products online and in stores. They gave you access to data from about a million sessions, ended up being about 180,000 customers in total, I think. Um, and th those were sessions from 2018. Do you think your results would be different if you'd have used more current data? Um, I would hope not, um, because I do think when you're approaching a sample size up to a million, it's not quite big data, but um, for some circles, that it, it's a 
a huge sample size and it's fairly robust um, after going through a lot of statistical tests. And if anything, the results might be confirmed a bit more because what we're seeing now with online shopping from 2018 to today, uh, the world has gone through, uh, you know, quite a hard time with the pandemic. For e-commerce marketers, the silver lining to that uh, is that people's online consumer behavior has changed dramatically um, because of the convenience and, and the safety factor. So if anything, I would say that the results would hold and they would be much stronger. More reinforced because of the behavior. Absolutely. What should online retailers do with products that are sold out? Do they list them anyway? Should we let people put a hold on them, offer a substitute? When people encounter a sold out item, which would be a big kind of purchase motivation, right, is um, it, it's interesting that in, in some cases it could increase the demand and the desire because of the psychology is, well, we can't get something, therefore it must be good, it must be valuable, other people want it, it's in demand. So the literature has showed it bizarrely can almost uh, enhance somebody's desire to it. But the reality is in this day and age, we vote with our wallets in the era of capitalism and hyper-competitiveness that some consumers are just simply leaving your interface and they're going and they're going to buy it from somebody if they're in that mindset already. So again, and I don't have the data for this, a lot of times it depends on somebody's mindset going in. And this is where the data has some limitations. But if somebody is in that mindset and it's a utilitarian process or product, you know you're going to buy it because you need to buy it. If it's sold out, you're going to go to a competitor. Um, but then again, if somebody doesn't have that purchase, uh, purchase motivation from the get-go, but they want to um, just organize and get some information search, they're more likely to put technically a sold-out item in their cart and come back to it and buy it when it is restocked. Uh, so I would say out of all of our variables, that's probably one of the more time-sensitive ones, right? Because for some people, you don't mind waiting a day or two. But um, depending on the person and the product and the situation, for some people, they have no problem just leaving and, and going, look, if you're not selling it, somebody else is. I think most consumers, and, and I may be wrong about this, but I, I think that most consumers who think about card abandonment or, 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 or the science of that is described to them, they're only kind of real world relationship to it are these retargeting emails that we get. You know, you end up on a website, you, you put one thing in a basket, you leave the website, and then like eight seconds later, you get an email from the company saying, come back, come back. How soon should we be retargeting people when they've left something in a cart? God, you know, I, I wish I could talk about my team's research right now on this, but um, we have never done that study. But there is a marketing professor um, who has done work on this. And um, his and his research team found that there was like a double-edged sword and it can actually backfire that uh, if a company sends out that message too soon. Um, and that paper came in the Journal of Marketing uh, recently, and I believe it's called something to the effect of like the backfiring effect or the double-edged sword of behavioral retargeting in e-commerce. And I thought that was a fascinating study. And it points out your really good question that, yes, it's good to do this, to behaviorally retard, to remind us like, hey, you know, your product was sold out. I know you were interested in this. Uh, come back and buy it, even if you give a nice 
promotion code, maybe someone would be more interested and buy it. But there is a secret in the timing, according to their research, right, that we can't do it too soon because it's too pushy. But you also can't do it too late, right? Because if we do this too late, then maybe somebody else, to my earlier point, they've moved on, especially if it's a utilitarian product. Uh, I'll give you a crazy example. You know, (laughs) my kids are at their baseball um, pictures right now, and they needed a purple youth belt. And it has to be purple. It has to be Clemson purple, right? So that's an example of something as a parent, we need that for picture day. So if Amazon doesn't have a youth purple belt in size small, I'm not going to put it in my cart in weight. Um, that's something where I simply, it doesn't matter how much more expensive it is, I'm going to find it, <laughs> whoever's selling it online to buy. Um, so in that case, we would have bought anyway, no matter when that target email came. But again, if you wait too long, uh, people will forget and, and they will have moved on. You mentioned incentives. I'm curious to know whether you studied that, whether you're offering incentives to come back decreased card abandonment, like maybe free shipping or something. That would be cool. But we had a limitation with that data set, right? In that we only had whatever was able to be click um, captured on that click stream. And we didn't, we weren't able to capture that. So basically what we were able to capture were things like, um, did they have an existing cart? In other words, when they opened up their session, was the item from the last session already there or not? We looked at the number of sold out products um, that they were exposed to. We looked at the number of clearance pages that they were again exposed to. I can't assume that they read it. That's a limitation of this data. Again, is um, we're just looking at mere exposures, um, but we're assuming that they uh, scanned through them. We also looked at things like how many products they took away from their cart, the number of overall products seen, the number of product reviews seen, and if they were shopping from a tablet, a phone, or a PC. I was going to ask, was there much of a difference in, in abandonment behavior between people who were buying on desktop versus a smartphone? There was. So we looked at this as kind of the convenience motivation. Um, and we didn't see quite so much differences between the um, mobile devices, the tablets, and the um, phones. But there was more of a substantial uh, effect between shopping on a desktop versus um, a more mobile device. And we think that, again, has to do with a convenience motivation. Maybe when we're shopping on our phone, maybe we don't have that mindset of um, as purchasing as much. Maybe people take things a little bit more serious when they're shopping from um, a PC. Now, what could be confounded with that and data that I don't have or our team doesn't have is, you know, where are people shopping from? And I've always had this hunch that maybe people who are shopping from a PC, they might be doing this from work, right, during the day. Um, So we did look at the time of day, and I really do think that it's correlated. I I have a personal, like, hunch, right, that when people are at a secure place, they're at work maybe, they're on their PC, that they could be more in that mindset um, of completing a purchase rather than if they're perusing around at night on their phone, you know, maybe they're more of a mindset of – searching and browsing and maybe they simply put something in their cart just to get more information or to see how much this is actually going to cost after uh, fees and, and taxes. 
And we know, I think, the research, not yours specifically, but just sort of general marketing research into this space knows that there is some level of device switching. But I was interested to note that this device switching, at least the numbers that you found, it wasn't nearly as big a thing as I think most people in the industry think it is. You found, I think, 98% of smartphone users never switched to desktop or any other device during or, or between sessions. Yeah. Did that surprise you? It did, but just like you, it's such a buzzword right now in marketing and business, right? It's something we teach about. It's something that um, there's so many cool words for it, like the second screen phenomenon and this thought that the way that we consume is so different. Um, You know, obviously it used to be that you would go to a store and just buy something. um, But today there's all these new fancy terms like showrooming Mm. uh, and web rooming, right? So the whole concept of a customer going to the store and then feeling it and touching it and making their decision. And then um, maybe even right there in the store, which I think is a little rude, but I think a lot of people are shameless in this um, respect, is they will just blatantly get out their phone and start looking for a better price and then tell that poor yeah. salesperson, you know, <laughs> thanks. I, you know, thanks for letting me try this on. I look fabulous in it. Um, now I'm going to go to your lobby and I'm going to go buy it from your competitor to save $4. Um, maybe that's shameless. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's smart, right? It's um, all depending how you perceive this. And of course, if you're the marketer or if you're the consumer, and as I'm a consumer and a marketer, I think I'm more sensitive to, um, you know, the salesperson's point of view than the average person, of course, right? Um, but, you know, to your point, there's just so much going on with channel switching and all of these new behaviors. We expected that there would be a sizable amount of people who started shopping maybe from their desktop, um, And then they would complete that transaction or continue looking at the product when they got to their phone. But we found in a sample size of, uh, what, 958,000, so uh, almost a million, that about 98%, from my memory, of all of our transactions were completed at the same device that they started with. Now, I'm not saying that 98% of transactions were completed. So don't hear me. Um, I hope I'm not misrepresenting myself. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. But of the group that were. Correct. Um, so I'm not saying device switching is not important. But just when we're talking about retail sales, and again, keep in mind, we're talking about a British uh, multinational retailer with over 500 stores. I mean, it's a major store. But what we're looking at Uh, would be things like clothing, footwear, sporting goods, sporting apparel, homeware, which probably aren't huge ticket items. Um, I think if you look at the average cart size um, of things that were completed with this data set, uh, it's not a huge amount of money. So I do think I have a hunch that the device switching would happen more Mm. on high-end items. Like, some people buy cars online these days. Like my students have told me they have no problem um, about buying a car over the internet. Maybe my generation and older, um, that's something that just seems like unusual. But my hunch is if you are one of those people who are going to be buying a big ticket item, i.e. a car or something like that, absolutely, you would probably be more inclined to device switch, right? Because you're probably not just breezily sitting down and putting something like a car in your shopping cart and then just buying it on your lunch break. Um, So I, I do think 
one of the next studies that my team and I would like to do, or at least I would like to do or encourage my peers or someone in industry to do, uh, would be to replicate our work, um, but also uh, dig deeper into the actual type of things that are bought, big ticket versus, you know, a T-shirt or something, and see if device switching plays a bigger role. Because if you read our data um, and our findings, device switching really didn't happen a lot. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. And if you like the format of this podcast, you will love theirs. It's packed with information, but it's brief. Last week, they had a great rundown on car prices, not just the numbers, but why car prices moved, how weather affects that market. It was super interesting. They also cover things like boosting your credit score, putting money away for retirement, saving on travel, and so on. So yeah, listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Putting our podcast and newsletter together can get complicated. We had show notes in one place, interview coordination in another, brainstorming somewhere else. It's easy to lose track of the big picture when you have to open a new window for every detail. With Miro, you can bring everything and everyone together in one place. Consolidate different points of view and increase team collaboration all on one centralized board. For instance, we used Miro to figure out the right flow for our newsletter automations. It let us get our team all contributing, including our ad agency people, and saved us a ton of time. And its new AI tool, which summarizes and clusters information automatically, was a game changer. Find simplicity in your most complex projects with Miro. Your first three Miro boards are free when you sign up today at Miro.com slash podcast. That's three free boards at Miro.com slash podcast. You know, it's not just young people, though. I, my wife and I uh, bought a Kia Carnival 2022 basically off TikTok. Uh, we saw a video. Some, someone did a video about it, uh, the new model, and it happened to have the, uh, 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 the, the layout inside that we needed. And um, two months later, we, we had the exact same thing, which is kind of bizarre. And then you mentioned the, the showrooming and people shamelessly um, just sort of going out into the lobby to buy it. A friend of mine uh, just bought a bookstore up in the north of Canada, and she was doing a book sale at like a like a mall and had a bunch of her books out. And this woman apparently came up and was just taking photographs of, of books here and there. And my friend Jen said, what, what, what are you taking the, the things for? She said, well, I'm just going to go buy them on, on Amazon, like right to the face right. of the person of the bookseller. Right. You know, it's it is getting kind of shameless in that way. Exactly. And, and maybe maybe shameless is a bad word. In fact, I like almost want to retract that when I said I was like, oh, dear, I'm not calling consumers shameless. But I, I do think like so you and I are marketers, right, or, or have the tendency to think like a business person and think like a marketer. And it's just like, I don't know, have you ever been a server or a host or like worked in the restaurant industry? So um, it's kind of like that. I, I feel it from both sides. So now whenever I go out to eat, it's like I want to tip well, like I want to be polite. I, I want to be like not pressuring them because I've been a server and a host and I know what it's like on the other side. So I think now when I'm a cu customer, I, 
I almost have the sense of empathy for the salespeople a lot of times because they're just front line, they're the frontline employee, right? And a lot of times they don't have the managerial decision-making ability to haggle on pricing um, or, you know, explain away some of these bizarre fees and things like that. So, um, so yeah, no, you're right. The world is changing and it's almost like the etiquette or the netiquette is questionable. People don't know, is this appropriate? And maybe it's because they're not thinking from it from the business's point of view. They're thinking rightly so from their point of view. Hey, if I can save, you know, five bucks ordering this book on, on eBay or Amazon instead of buying it from the author who's like sitting right there, um, maybe people don't understand that that is on that gray area of etiquette these days. Who knows? <laughs> Back to shopping carts. I, I want to, you know, I, I was thinking about this last night. My wife and I were talking about it. She's also in, in the academic world. So we were sort of chatting about this interview coming up. She and I use our, we have like a shared Amazon account, essentially. And there is apparently a way to connect up a family version to it. But there are no Amazon families available in Canada. So we can't do it. So we have a single shared Amazon account, which makes it difficult when we're trying to buy gifts for each other on Amazon. But whatever. We use the shopping cart as almost as a kind of placeholder, as a wish list, as a I'll think about this later list. Should we encourage consumers to do this? Does that does having does encouraging that behavior help or hurt eventual sales? It depends when, because keep in mind, our unit of analysis is one shopping session, which is defined as the second you log on to the second you close the browser or um, the app in that in, in some cases. Um, so if we had long-term data, I think the question would be have a different answer than the way that I can answer it within that shorter window. Because based on our research on the long, the big picture over the last 10 years, I think there are uh, good things about this wish list, right? Because it signals intent. And again, if it's a big picture item, you're more inclined to go back uh, and buy that purchase. But from a short um, time period, uh, it could actually be a bad thing because you're putting it in a wish list and that's like a separate mindset. You're thinking like, okay, for this birthday coming up or uh, for us, it's, you know, when whenever Christmas comes, this is good to kind of put on a list. Um, also speaking as a mother, by the way, you know, for a second, not Professor Scheinbaum, but Corbin Barrett and Wesley's mama, um, I think it's a very uh, smart idea to have this long-term mentality for the wish list because if you're a parent too, if you're all the parents out there, you get this thing called pester power, which, <laughs> which you know, is like the, the kids are saying, oh, you know, I really want this like, you know, big $200 play set thing, right? And you want to get it for your kids. Uh, they continuously pester, so you want to put it on this list. Okay, this will be for Christmas, or this will be for their birthday, or this will be for their next big um, milestone, whatever that is. So I do think that there's a lot of good to these wish lists. Um, but one kind of caveat to this, and I think Amazon has really mastered this, and it's good and it's bad for us as parents and consumers in general, is the whole buy it now feature. So if you're able to buy something now versus putting it on a wish list, that's a sale that the company is getting right that second within that session that we can measure uh, as a conversion. So uh, again, it depends on how you think of it long versus short. But from the long point of view, I think it's good to have these wish lists. But from the short term point of view, 
it would be much better from the company's point of view if we would just click buy it now. Um, and I just don't, I don't want my kids to know where that button is. <laughs> because then I would have Pokemon like shipped to the house regularly. <laughs> if you were to do this study now or a year from now, how, uh, to what extent do you think this trend toward the cookie apocalypse and the removal of cross-site tracking would affect your ability, researchers' ability to collect this kind of data? Like, are we not only entering a time where it's going to be difficult for us to measure ad campaigns as marketers, but are we entering a time where this cro removal of cross-site tracking, the removal of third-party cookies, uh, the enhanced privacy, is going to contribute to a loss in the research community of what marketing science can offer practitioners? Uh, yes, I wish I had a, a different answer for you. But the truth is, from, from my understanding, um, our data was modeled on shoppers who were registered. So not just browsing, right? But at one point, they had registered with this e-tailer. So in order Which bypasses the third party and the cookie issue, right? So for us to um, really include people in this data set, we had to make sure they were registered, right? Otherwise, you had asked me earlier about um, multi devices, we wouldn't be able to answer that question, uh, unless we had the ability um, to have that, that data. Um, so yes, to your point, the more of these restrictions, um, the less we as researchers can really answer some of these very minuscule, uh, like detailed questions, such as what percentage of customers started with a tablet and then they went to their desktop. Right now we could answer that. Yeah. But in the future, sometimes we're not going to be able um, to do this. What surprised you the most about your findings? I think we were pretty much set up um, for these, with the exception of the sold-out items theme. That one was something we uh, ultimately just phrased as a research question because there, there wasn't a lot of literature or common sense that probably would help us set that up either way. So in other words, the more items that you see that are sold out, how is that going to affect the shopping cart abandonment? That one to us was, um, you know, was kind of surprising in the sense that we weren't really sure how that would work. Um, another question that still to this day, um, I, I feel like there's really not a lot of clarity on is removing items from the cart. You know, when a customer has 30 items and they put them in their cart and they are you know, going to remove 29 of them. How is that different than the customer who's just putting one thing in and then they don't finish that transaction? Um, so I think there's still room to um, address those two topics because to me anyway, those were a little bit fuzzy compared to the other ones, which were uh, much more clear in terms of our reasons for studying them. And why? So I guess the last question, it might be the single most important one, and that is how should marketers change what they're doing right now in light of your findings? One is that marketers should 
understand or at least think about that there's a differential relationship of retailer provided versus consumer provided information search with the cart use and uh, cart abandonment. So what retailers could do is to encourage customers to place more items in their cart. Online retailers should make consumer reviews more visible. However, the results are also showing that exposure to too much information could make what we call information overload. And then that could spark something called choice deferral. Again, kind of putting it off Planned procrastination was an earlier word that um, we had used for that. Um, so what customers can do and what companies can do is really think about those customer reviews and um, where they're going to be on that site and if they're needed at all. Because if it produces information overload, in some cases, it could actually be a detriment to closing that sale. Well, Dr. Scheinbaum, it's certainly interesting research. I'm delighted you could share it with us. Thank you so much. Angeline Scheinbaum is an associate professor of marketing at the somewhat hilariously named Wilbur O. and N. Powers College of Business at Clemson University in South Carolina. I always love the way American schools throw every donor's name on everything. She had other co-authors on the paper. Those people are, and my apologies, I'm probably going to butcher these names, Monica Cooker Kinley and Jeffrey R. Carlson from the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond, Larry Oremole from the Business School at the University of Southampton in the UK, and Hipping Hay from the College of Management at Shenzhen University in China. <laughs> 